Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History. This is a very special episode indeed. A few months ago, I went to the Gloucester History Festival. I met two veterans from the, the British Army's first time, the Gloucester Regiment, better known as the glorious Gloucesters, because of what happened on this river in Korea in April 1951. To mark the 70th anniversary of the battle, I met with Tommy Clough. He was actually a gunner with the Royal Artillery, but he was attached to the Gloucesters, and Brian Hamblett, he served in a machine gun platoon in the Gloucesters, and they were both at the battle. They were both Chinese prisoners of war, as you'll hear, for more than two years. The Battle of the Imjin River is probably the single most remarkable, most memorable brigade-sized action that the British Army has fought since the Second World War. In the spring of 1951, a massive Chinese offensive against United Nations forces in South Korea had begun. They were trying to retake Seoul. The front line had been seesawing up and down the Korean Peninsula. We've got several podcasts available on the Korean War, which you may want to go back and listen to either on this feed or on History Hits TV, our digital history channel where we have all our podcasts without the ads and all our television shows as well, hundreds of hours of TV shows. So head back and listen to one of those. But we're talking about the Spring Offensive 1951 now. A massive Chinese force assaulted a section of the UN line composed of Northumberland Fusiliers, the Gloucesters, and other units. The local commander was Brigadier Tom Brody, and he was responsible for about a 15-kilometre section of the front. The battle that followed had the highest casualties of any British action since the Second World War. It was amazing talking to Tommy Clough and Brian Hamlet in Gloucester about their experiences. As you'll hear, they were irrepressible. In fact, at the end, I have to interrupt them because I was at a live history event and people had to go to other talks. No one wanted to leave, but they kind of had to because they needed the room for another talk. Some poor historian was coming on. Very tough act to follow. I am going to go back to Gloucester. I'm going to interview these remarkable men again for History Hit TV, so you'll be able to watch as well as listen to these fantastic people. If you follow the link in the description to this podcast, you'll get taken to History at TV. You'll get two weeks completely free. You can check the whole thing out. We've got all the podcasts on there, like I say, and we've got hundreds of hours of history documentaries as well. This was a wonderful experience, particularly after months of lockdown, to get back in the room with two card-carrying legends. So enjoy this conversation with Tommy Clough and Brian Hamlet. Hello. Hello, everybody. Welcome, welcome, welcome. It's a great excitement to be back. This is very exciting for me because I was intending to make the most of the Korean commemorations. This is a big 
under-understood, under-remembered war in British history. We've got wonderful veterans still alive that we can talk to. And we've got the huge anniversary uh, this year and last. And it was all cancelled because of COVID. So tonight's a very special night for me because it's a chance to get in the same room as two legends, two national treasures, to talk about the Imjin. We've got Tommy Clough, who was 19 when he went to Korea. Now, he's an artilleryman, and Tommy came up to me a few years ago and gave me a good telling off about the Imjin River because, of course, I talked about the glorious Gloucesters, and I did not mention the people that were also there at the battle, the artillerymen and uh, the Northumberland Fusiliers as well, of course. So tonight is me making up Tommy. Thank you very much. Apologising to you. I <laughs> promised you I'd, we, next time we'd talk about you, and here we are. Brian Hamlet, you turn 19 on the Windrush. Yeah, 19th, but already, yeah, yeah. Going out to Korea. Yeah. There's so much politics and so much yo-yoing up and down the peninsula, but we've got you guys tonight. I think you'll all forgive me if we cut straight to the action. Spring, 1951, 70 years ago. Tell me where you were on that bend in the Imjin River, and what was it like? Tom, let's start with you. Well, it started on the 22nd. It started with a patrol of the Gloucesters going down to the river, and we were half expecting an assault because it was time for the Chinese spring offensive. We in Britain, we have a bank holiday, but the Chinese have a spring offensive. It's in their nature, or at least it was in Korea. And that night on the 22nd, a young second lieutenant, Guy Temple, took a patrol down to the river, and the expected happened the Chinese started to cross. And by the morning, the patrol had expended their ammunition and withdrawn, but the Chinese had started to cross the river in force. And that was the thing. We knew what was happening. I was back with my mortar troop. We were supporting the Gloucesters with 4.2 mortars very effective for troops in the open. Tommy. And we were laying down barrages. Tommy, tell us all what a mortar is. What's a mortar, the difference? It's not like a gun, it fires a bomb. High trajectory, as Dan's just described. And it's literally a bomb that's thrown into the air and lands. It's very handy for firing over buildings, mountains or whatever. And we were with heavy mortars. The infantry had three-point-inch mortars. We had 4.2 mortars. And, like I say, very effective. And it was a question of kill or be killed. Their casualties must have been appalling because we had the firepower they had the manpower. And the odds, apparently, at the time, were seven to one against us. But eventually, we reckon it was ten to one. Brian, you were one of the infantrymen that he was busy dropping bombs on. Tell me, before the Chinese attack, what kind of perimeter, what kind of defensive posture are you in? 
I was, I was MMG, so we were on the periphery. A machine gun. A machine gun, yeah, a Vickers machine gun. And um, obviously we had our fixed targets, like, you know. So um, we were on the periphery of the battle, really. I mean, we were sat there waiting for... Is it appropriate to use... Are you in trenches? What, are you dug in? What... Oh, we were dug in because we were there for weeks before. I mean, we've been, been waiting for this for ages, like, you know. And... Um, because I've been on, on a long-range patrol before that with, with a Centurion. We went 14, I think it was 14 miles, we went on patrol looking for the enemy, like, you know. We didn't see anybody. And we, we come to this one hill and we all decanted and all, that was a frightening experience. We had a fixed bayonets and go up this hill, like, you know. That was a, quite an experience. And, well, you grew up then, don't you? You grew, you grew up. And I think there, they must have been laughing at us, like, you know. And we came back and then a few days later, they came at us. So tell me about the scenery. You've got the Imjin. How wide is the Imjin River? Well, they've, they've forded it, so with that wide. So you can no, walk across? It would be, yeah, it would be in flood. It would be, obviously be a raging torrent, but I mean. And, and there's quite high mountains, aren't there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hills, big hills. Big hills, yeah. I don't know whether they were Monroe's or not. I'm not sure. And are there, are there trees? Because there's trees there now, aren't there? Well, yeah, but it was, it was decimated before by the right. Japanese, apparently. We learned this all after, like, you know, that. Um, the Japanese had raped the country, really. All the trees had gone. So you could see, very good visibility, was it? You could yeah, it was see... good visibility, yeah, 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 yeah. And what about you as a machine gunner? Yeah. When the Chinese are starting to ford, you must have thought to yourself, well, it's going to come down to me today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we, yeah. Well, unfortunately, we were, were looking that way, look, you know, we just on the perimeter. So they, actually, they'd gone round us, hadn't they? So we were encircled in a way, look, you know. So the Chinese are avoiding obstacles. They're just infiltrating. They're trying to find gaps in the Allied line. Aren't yeah, they? yeah, right. yeah. Because we had such a white front, like, you know, was, uh, the, the RNFs and the Ulsters were with us and the Belgian battalion. But there was miles between each battalion, like, you know, so there was, you know, they could infiltrate really easily, like, you know. It's, um, and could you see them infiltrate? Could you see them coming around the edges? Well, no, i never seen them. No, no, I've seen a few, but not many, like, you know. But I mean, it must have been horrible for the, the, real, the guys who were right in the thick of it, like, you know. So you could hear the firing? You could... Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's frightening, really, yeah, yeah, yeah. I imagine when you're not in the thick of it, you, you, your mind is not as occupied. You're probably, it's probably just as difficult waiting and not being certain of what's about to come. That's right, exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, we were, well, we were always so tired because we stood to before dusk and, and after dusk and then before dawn and after dawn. And we were doing stags in between, like, you know, you're all suddenly completely knackered, like, you know, it's always tired, you know. In the end, you get a bit sort of peachy, you, you know, you just accept it, like, you know, you, you accept your lot, you, you just carry on with it, like, you know, and uh, it's a strange feeling, really. But we, we never had any tin helmets or anything, you know, all we had was soft cuff, calf competitors, like, no protective headgear? No protective headgear at all, no. Because we were, we had the remnants of World War II. Like, we were poorly equipped, really. I mean, well, all oh, this is in hindsight, really, but I mean, you learn so much more after, like, you know, than, than at the time. Tommy, what about you? When did you start firing? When did you get, have to get called up by the infantry to provide artillery support? Well, the following morning, I mean, the night before, on the 22nd, you see, in the artillery, what you do, 
you register targets when you can see them. During the day, you register a crossroads or a hill or whatever. You drop a couple of practice ones That's on That's right, yeah. You fire smoke or whatever, and you register them. So in the evening, when it gets dark, that's when the attacks come in and you can't see them. You can hear them. Their noise discipline at night was terrible. You could hear them chattering as they crossed. But we were called on, it's what they call defensive fire. And we fired on targets at night that we'd registered during the day. The following morning, we could see what was happening. And I was with what they called the FOO, the Forward Observation Officer with the Gloucesters. They should have put an L on the end and made it fool, but never mind. <laughs> um, and we were observing targets, and we were registering targets at 700 yards. Our minimum range is 900, because with a mortar, you've got to be careful. You're firing a bomb up in the air, and you've got to be careful you don't drop it on yourselves, which does happen occasionally. That's why they call us the drop shorts. Anyway, I went back to the mortar position, and one of the lads said to me, because they can't see what they're firing at, he said, are there many of them? Now, I didn't want to spread alarm and despondency, but whilst I was with the forward positions, my officer, Captain Wisby, had handed me his binoculars and told me where to look. And I looked between two hills, and I literally, all I could see were ants. But it wasn't ants, of course, it was the enemy. And they were coming across in swarms. And that was their tactics. It was literally cannon fodder. They just came in in waves, and Brian will tell you, you just mowed them down, the first wave went down, the second wave came up, and took the weapons off the first wave and just carried on. There was no regard for loss of life, as long as they could occupy a position. And of course, with us and the Gloucesters, with the infantry. I mean, I saw British infantry at the engine at its best. I also saw my own regiment, Royal Artillery, British gunnery at its best. And I'd never seen anything like it before, although I'd been in a couple of battles earlier in February. The, the support we were given by the Royal Artillery, the 45th Field Regiment, was amazing. Because we were in a tight perimeter, we were completely surrounded, and at one point, we didn't know at the time, but we heard later that eventually, we'll come to that, but when we were taken prisoner, the Chinese were 15 miles behind us, heading towards Seoul the capital of South Korea. We knew we were fighting a battle for survival, but we had amazing support 
from my regiment, although I, I boast it. And we also had good support from the American Air Force with airstrikes, which we'd called for. Now, with an airstrike, sorry, you were going to say something? Well, I'm saying, so when you, you, you're, you're firing at 700 yards, yeah. are you observing the... So you're able to see where those shots are falling and what effect they're having? Oh, yes, definitely, because the thing about a mortar is it's not very effective, the bomb, with people in trenches unless it falls directly on the trench. But it's very good at troops in the open. Is it bursting in the air above the troops, or is it hitting the ground and then it detonating? Hitting the ground. There was no air fuses, except for flares. They exploded on impact, and the explosion scattered small pieces of shrapnel over a range of about 200 yards, or 150 to 200 yards, and killed anything within that range. In the heat of battle, did you feel sympathy with the poor blighters that you were mowing down, or, or was it...? The only time I felt any sympathy, really, I mean, when they were attacking us, you didn't feel anything. You were is kill or be killed. So you had to kill. So it was a matter of, like I say, kill or be killed. The only time I felt any sympathy for them was when we had an airstrike. Now, the Americans, during the um, Korean War, and it was used in Vietnam quite extensively, they discovered napalm. And the way it was discovered was, when they sent their aircraft over from Japan or Guadalcanal or whatever, they had reserve tanks on the wings. And as soon as they entered the dogfight, or were in action, they used to drop these reserve tanks and fight. It made the aircraft more maneuverable. And the tanks were full of gas, gasoline, or um, aviation. petrol, aviation fuel, half gas. And they noticed that when they dropped these tanks, some of them exploded, hitting the ground. So somebody thought the bright idea was to put a fuse on them and use them for dropping on enemy troops. Now, the 1st Brigade over there, 27th Brigade from Hong Kong, unfortunately, a trigger-happy American dropped a few napalm bombs on the Argyles, or the Argyle and Sutherlands, and they had quite a few uh, killed and wounded from friendly fire. Not very friendly. I used to call it blue on blue. Anyway, when they gave us support at the Imgium, we were in trenches or whatever. The aircraft came in from behind us and dropped the napalm. When they dropped it, I thought, uh-oh, another incident of friendly fire, or unfriendly fire, as the case may be. But fortunately, the lead aircraft knew what he was doing. He dropped his napalm before he reached us. It went over our heads into the Chinese. And it was a terrible weapon. It was jellified petrol, which flowed. If you were in a trench, it flowed into the trench, and you were burnt alive. 
and I could smell, very similar to pork cooking, but obviously worse, sweeter, and the pain and cries of the Chinese. And at that point, I did feel sorry for them, because if it had been used against us, I'm afraid we'd have been out of our trenches and going, you know. Now, the thing about the Chinese, Brian will tell you, we weren't certain, because they came at us in waves, we weren't certain whether they were drugged or whether they coerced from behind, whether they were being driven in, and we think it was a mixture of all three, and bravery, because they showed no regard for loss of life or limb. Well, I just think it was indoctrination from, from the communists, like yes. we, you know. Yeah, because they, obviously they had commissars it. behind them, driving them on. And I, this is why I think most of those troops, Chinese troops, that were in Korea were nationalists and weren't indoctrinated into communism. Ryan, what about you? Did you see the human wave attacks where you were? No, I didn't actually, no, but I, I'd seen the results of napalm before the, the battle. We, they'd take us to show people had been napalm, and it was a horrible sight. You could still see the bodies, charred bodies, and the smell was really horrible. And I don't think it'd be allowed now, <laughs> health and safety, like, you know, but that was a wake-up call, that was, yeah. But, but you did see some Chinese, do you fire your weapon during the battle? Yeah, 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 we, as soon as we opened up, we sort of had it back, like, didn't we? we as soon as you opened our, our Vickers up, you got blast effectors on, but they can see where you're coming from, and next minute you've got mortars and all sorts coming at you, like, you know. It's not very nice. And what's it like discharging your weapon into groups of attacking infantrymen? Do you think about... No, effect? you don't, no, no, you do you, well... Well, I always think we were just trained to obey orders. Well, that was all we do. We were trained to obey what we... And this is the question that you guys always hate. It's and a question it is... of self-defence and survival. Kill or be killed. As plain as that. This is the question that whenever I'm being annoying journalists or something, and I ask guys that you always get angry at me, but were you scared? Were you thinking, I do not want to die on this barren stretch of a Korean hillside? The thing is, Dan, you were quite okay in action because you were busy. You, you didn't have time to be scared. The time you were scared is when they were preparing to attack. Now, the Chinese had very few radios, so the only contact between Chinese units was either by runner or, or bugles. bugles yeah. They had a lot of bugles, and then you heard the bugle call, that's when you were scared, because you knew an attack was coming in. Once the attack started, you were too busy to be scared. And it was after the battle or an attack was over, you felt relief that you made it until the next attack. Is that true with you as well, Brian? Well, we were just sitting, waiting, like, you know, to, for the next signal to go fire our guns or what, you know. But they didn't call upon us because the losses had retreated, gradually been forced back and back and back. So our fixed points in the end became useless, like, you know. So, um, you know, we were in limbo, really. Are you aware what's happening elsewhere on the battlefield? Colonel Khan making decisions? Are you aware of any of that stuff? The only decision I remember is every man for himself. 
<laughs> we, that was it, like, you know, we just started, well, we'd never seen a map, we just went forward and turned left, like, you know, <laughs> down this valley, and it was fine as long as the Americans were strafing the, the hills each side, because they were fighting the death of our air power, and once that stopped, they'd open it on us then, like, you know, and the Americans were supposed to be coming to relieve us, or find an escape passage for us, that was blue on blue there, but I mean, in the end, quite a few of the battalion got out. Captain Harvey's D company and all of his company got out. But then, once the plane stopped, we would just kept on firing on us, so we dived into one of their trenches, like a, in a bunker, and we thought, well, we'll wait till night, because every quiet then. Like, we thought we hadn't been seen, like, you know, so we waited for night. <laughs> Next to me, we were surrounded by a ring of Chinese, all begging us to come out, like, you know. So, what about you? The thing is, Dan, I told earlier about an understatement I'd made to one of our lads on the mortars. There are quite a few of them. The second understatement, which is quite famous, yeah. was made by Brigadier Brody, the brigade commander. He was back at one of the echelons, and he was asked, by a three-star American general. What are things like on your sector, Brigadier? And his reply was, <laughs> the understatement of the year, things are a bit sticky. <laughs> now, what he should have said, and I'm going to be rude now, my brigade is up shit creek without a paddle. <laughs> and unfortunately, we were. Now, if he'd have said something like that, the Americans probably would have taken action sooner. But they did try to get through to us. They sent what they call a regimental combat team, which is the, the American equivalent of a, a battalion. And they couldn't make it. They couldn't get through without armored support. And the lead tank, a Centurion, was knocked out. And the thing about Centurions, they were a tank adapted at the end of World War II. Never been tried in action before. So they sent a regiment over, the 8th Hussars, which is a Gloucester regiment of tanks, and they sent Centurion tanks, which is still on the secret list. And unfortunately, every tank, because the Centurion, the mark at the time, was built in such a way that he could fire on the move accurately. Because normally a tank would have to stop and fire. But this tank had a stabilizing gear that could keep it stable. And those tanks, the turrets and the essential gear was um, primed to be exploded if it was in danger of being captured. And that's what happened to the first tank. It got knocked out, blocked the way, so armor couldn't get through. It wasn't tank country anyway, was it really? So it's, was it three days? Yeah. You held out? Yeah. Three days, three long days, and three very, very long nights. Did they mostly attack at night? Most of the attacks. You see, the Chinese, before I was captured, what happened was, when we came off the hill, 
I didn't hear the order, but it was every man for himself. Because at the end of three days, we were out of ammunition, we were out of water, which is essential when you've got wounded. Food was no barrier, but water and ammunition were. I mean, to be honest, we were that short of ammunition. Brian will tell you, we were throwing rocks at them. Now, when the rocks didn't explode, the Chinese realized we weren't throwing grenades, and they knew our number was up. So, but they mostly came at night. Most of the attacks came at night. And did you sleep at all? The True. thing is, you see, the Chinese had a tactic, a night tactic, which we'd experienced previously. They used to send a patrol in at night, and when they got within range of our lines, and we challenged them. They would reply in an English-speaking voice, "Don't shoot." So we naturally assumed they were one of our patrols coming back in, who'd forgotten the password or something. But it didn't work for long because we soon got the wind of this. Now, before we were captured, the same thing happened to me. I shot a Chinaman who was ready to shoot me. He was stood up, and he was pointing down at us. And on the ground beside him was a light machine gun with another Chinaman. So it was obviously that man stood up was directing the one on the ground. So I brought my rifle up and fired, and I got him. He went down, and then somebody shouted from my left in an English-sounding voice, "Don't!" Shoot! Now it was only at that point that I—I I was only a young gunner, 19—I realised we weren't fighting our way out. It would have been impossible anyway. They were too far behind us. We had no ammunition left, so there was no chance of fighting our way out. Can I ask, had you slept at all? No. Very little. You were two in a trench. So one slept while the other was awake, and vice versa. So you took it in turns to sleep. You took it in turns to go to the loo or whatever. And nighttime was the only time you could walk about, really. In the day, it was too dangerous. One of the things we did when we went onto Hill Two Three Five, the hill we were last on and surrounded. Is we took with us our barrels, our mortar barrels, and the sights, so the Chinese couldn't use them against us, because we had to leave in the valley where Battalion HQ was. We had to leave the base plates for the mortars and the bombs and everything like that. Although the adjutant, Captain Farah Hockley of the Gloucesters, he did send the patrol down. A mixed patrol down to where our vehicles were to recover as much ammunition and water as he could, which did us in good stead. It lasted us another day, but we were desperately short. And in the end, the Chinese didn't overrun us. That's one thing about it. 
The infantry, bless them, kept them at bay. And then the order went round, every man for himself, you leave the hill. And in the noise of battle, you don't hear things, always. And I didn't realize myself that everybody was going. And I said to my mate in the trench, where are we going? He said, south. So we all took off. And I said to my mate in the trench, I said, right, we'll try and catch our fool, the forward observation officer, because he knows the ground better than anybody. And we will get out. And one section from D Company, the officer took them north, which they didn't expect them. Towards the Chinese. That's right. He took them round, and 48 of them got out. But that was the most that anybody survived. The rest were either killed or taken prisoner. Brian, had you slept a soldier in those three days? No, not very much, no. I'm still trying to catch up. <laughs> They call me Kipper. <laughs> I've, heard, I've heard somebody who shares a room with you says you're a bit of a snorer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Brian, you're snoring. <laughs> <laughs> so when you tried to walk out, do you think you were going to make it or did you? Well, we, we were just mesmerised. We were just surrounded by Chinese and all huddled together, like, you know, and there was, they were, they were putting hair strikes as well in, like, you know, so we thought, going to get killed by our own folks looking out, but I mean, we survived that anyway. And how, so how long were you on the run before you got captured by the Chinese? Hours. Not very long, a few hours, well, yeah. a few hours, yeah. We just, as we say, Tommy was saying, you're just overwhelmed by numbers, like, you know, you, when we were hopefully waiting in this trench for nightfall to make our own way, when, when the planes stopped going over, down they came, like, you know. And how were they when they captured you? Well, I, I think they were Bemused, probably. They'd never done anything like that before, and we just heard it together. And then, in the end, we started walking north. We didn't march. We ambled north, didn't we, really, Tom? That took us, no, long, no. Took us a long time. But I mean, we, used to march, we used to march at night. Well, the strange thing was, excuse me interrupting, but they were allowed us to go so far, although they were picking us off now and again, just to keep our heads down. We had four mortar barrels, and one of the things we had to do as gunners was destroy the mortar barrels before we took off the hill. So a grenade was given to four sergeants, and they were told to drop a grenade down the barrels of the mortars. And three of them were doing this, and the fourth one as he did it, he was hit by a sniper. And that's what was happening. Fortunately, he died very quickly. He died a painless death. But on the way out, they were picking us off willy-nilly, as they wished. It was like a shooting gallery. They allowed us to go so far. And then, like I say, I shot this gentleman, went down, and we got round him and carried on. Now, suddenly, we were surrounded on either side by Chinamen. And they were young, very young Chinamen. They were almost like teenagers. And they were out of breath. And I think what had happened, 
The main force was driving towards Seoul, the capital, and these youngsters, they were literally youngsters, had been ordered because they don't go by vehicle, they run because they were guerrillas. They were conducting guerrilla warfare. So they ran and cut us off. So they came down on either side, very flushed from running. You could see they'd been running. By this time, I tried to, in my case, I tried to destroy my rifle. I took the bolt out, took it to bits, ammunition. I only had four rounds left anyway. I'd use one on this Chinaman. And if you've ever tried to destroy any old soldiers amongst you, if you ever tried to destroy a Lee-Enfield 303, very difficult, a World War II weapon, the only thing I managed to damage was the sight. But I threw it away anyway, because it was useless. And then the next thing, they were on us. They, I heard a voice shout from behind, and I got a feeling it was the adjutant, Farah Hockley, shout, OK, lads, lay down your arms, if you've still got any. We are captured. And then they descended on us, lined us up, and searched us for watches, anything valuable. Now, in my case, I don't know what happened to Brian, but in my case, I had a watch, which I was very proud of. I'd won it playing cards, mm -hmm. but <laughs> on the ship. Anyway, they took it from me. Well, they would have done, but I hid it. Now, we're in mixed company, so I won't tell you where I hid it. But I hid it and kept it, and I still had it in the prison camp. And you needed a watch for navigation if you escaped. But that's another story, the life in the camps. Because like Brian says, immediately after we were taken, they started pushing us north, getting us away from the front line. Because the best time, I was told later, to try and escape is when you're near your own lines, because you don't have too far to go. But of course, by the time we realized this, we were many miles north. You listen to Dan Snow's History. I'm talking to Korean War veterans. More coming up. Hi, I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb. And in my podcast, Not Just the Tudors, we talk about everything from ballads to banqueting, from ghosts to gunpowder plots, from saints to sodomy. Not, in other words, just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Subscribe from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever wondered if the Hanging Gardens of Babylon were actually real? Or what made Alexander so great? Join me, Tristan Hughes, twice a week, every week on the Ancients from History hit, where I'm joined by leading academics, best-selling authors and world-class archaeologists to shine a light on some of ancient history's most fascinating questions, like who built Stonehenge and why? What are the Dead Sea Scrolls and why are they so valuable? 
And were the Spartan warriors really as formidable as the history books say? Join me, Tristan Hughes, twice a week, every week on the Ancients from History hit wherever you get your podcasts. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. How were you treated on that march and subsequently? Because that was April 1951, your prisoners of war. How long were you in for? Two years? Two and a half, in prison two, war, two and a half, in, two, yeah, yeah. in North Korea. Yeah. yeah. How were you treated on that march north and when you got to the camp? Well, Badly. The, yeah, by, well, we already fed at all, didn't we, Tom? Um, well, I mean, completely alien food to what we had. I mean, they traveled very low. They had sort of bandoliers, but it was full of meal. And all they had to do reconstitute that, and they'd, they'd live on that, like, you know. And we got sort of maize in sorghum, millet. Well, the powder we used to call bug dust, didn't we? Yeah. <laughs> but um, it was appalling, really. Yeah, it was appalling, really. The we, point we, is, we, Dan, we'd be the worst thing the... was medical attention. We had wounded men, men with legs missing, arms missing, and medical attention was virtually nil. Mind you, it was virtually nil amongst the Chinese. They had very little... The only thing they used to have was a kind of gel, which was a disinfectant. And if you had a headache, which was doubtful, they would put it on your head. But medical attention oh, was, was zero. Zero, yeah. So not enough food. Was there brutality? There was, in many cases. The frontline troops were pretty good. They knew what we'd been through, and they were expecting the same themselves. Frontline troops are kind of geared up to a kind of, not exactly neutrality, but a comradeship. You're both in the same boat. You're both literally trying to kill each other. So there's a kind of comradeship, if you like. But the further north we got, the worse the treatment became. And this happened all the way to the camp. And it took us five weeks to get there because it was only 500 miles, but we didn't go direct. <laughs> we zigzagged because the Americans had air superiority, as you know. And the Chinese were terrified 
of air attacks. So we used to travel by night, hide up by day, until the further north we got, and the less air activity there was. And there were men, there were Second World War veterans, who'd been captured... By the Germans and Japanese, yeah. By the Japanese. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and those men, how were they going into captivity? What were their... Did they have a different response to you two? Well, they used to give us advice, obviously. They were experienced. They'd been captured before by the Japanese, who, in my opinion, treated them worse than the Koreans. But the Koreans were bad. The North Koreans. Because they'd been trained by the Japanese, hadn't they? Exactly, yeah. yeah. Well, that, um, yeah we, used to, we used to call one jungle. He was as mad as that. Or he'd, be, he'd been a prisoner war with the Japanese. He was an XAS as well. He's a real fruitcake, wasn't he? Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> but because um, we never had Red Cross or anything like that, they said we could treat you better than that. But I don't think they did really. But I mean, if we'd had Red Cross parcels, we could have made things out of the tins and things like that, couldn't we? Well, if we'd have had Red Cross parcels, hmm. we would have been laughing because there was only a few of us compared to World War II. There was a lot of Red Cross parcels left over from World War II. But the Chinese said, no, we can look after our own prisoners, which they couldn't. They used to blame the Americans for everything. Because all their supplies came across the Yellow River, which was a natural brown boundary between North Korea and China. And they used to bring stuff over the bridges, which the Americans were obviously continually bombing. And if there was no mail, the Chinese would blame the Americans. They hated the Americans like the plague. Well, they actually, they tried to indoctrinate us. We, yeah, we used yeah. to get, every night every day used to be harangued by them with the, about the American imperialist and all this crap, like, you know, about they were using germ warfare and things like this. And, of course, we, you get selective hearing in the end, you, you just switch off, don't you? I've hogged you for too long, and I'm going to let everyone ask a question in a second, but I've got one last question to ask. You'll forgive me, everyone. I'm being very selfish. You both seem very well-adjusted, happy, cheerful people. <laughs> you seem like it. My dad said to me, when he knew I was going to career, my dad said two things. Keep the sense of humour, whatever happens, and keep your head down. Well, I couldn't keep my head down, but I kept my sense of humor. We used to take the mickey out the Chinese, something rotten. I was only telling, a couple of months ago, the American um, ambassador. ambassador came to Gloucester, and Dickie asked me to tell him about the story of the digging of holes. Oh. When we were in the camp, we used to walk dogs around, imaginary dogs, look up at the sky for hours on end and get crowds of Chinese looking up with us. Nothing there. <laughs> Nothing there. Except the occasional dogfight hmm. with the MiGs from China. But one of the things we used to do is crazy. It's boredom, you see, because every day was the same, occasionally. Although I did try to escape, but I didn't even get out the camp. But that's another story. 
But what we used to do, we'd dig a hole, right? Quite deep over there, 200 yards away, we'd dig another hole. The dirt from that hole, we would put in that hole, and vice versa. The Chinese thought we were trying to dig our way out. <laughs> and um, they'd come and say, why do you do this? Why do you do Keep it quiet, keep it quiet. So they were mystified, and they used to walk away, shaking their heads. These crazy British, you know. And is that what's enabled you to remain happy and well-adjusted people, the, the comradeship and trying to find the sense of yeah. humour in these well, situations? Exactly we, made playing, right. we made playing cards out of bits of paper. We got, well, and I learned to play bridge over there as well, like, you know, bridge, crib, and whist, and all sorts of things. Like, you know, cloud, yeah. yeah. You see, the thing is, Dan, on the march up, you were okay if you kept with the main body. But if you got separated, like some of the wounded did, they were treated appallingly because they fell into North Korean hands. And in fact, when we were in the prison camps, the older men amongst us, the, the wise men, these, the old sweats, the reservists, used to tell us, if you manage to escape and you want to give yourselves up, which was more likely, because it was very, very difficult to escape, being white. At one time, I got yellow jaundice. And the medic who saw to me, a corporal, said, Tommy, now is the time to escape. I said, why? He said, because you got yellow jaundice. He was joking, of course. But what he meant was, it was pointless trying to pelt yourself off as a Korean. It was hopeless. Well, they'd say the wrong colored eyes wrong coloured hair, yeah, and their appearance as well, you know, we, we, no chance, like, you know. Gents, I've got to let the audience ask some questions now. Thank you very much indeed. We've got a roving microphone, and uh, we can hear more from these gentlemen. Let's put a hand up if you, uh, I'm sure we've got lots of hands. There you go, well done, sir, straight out of the... Yeah, my question's about George Blake indirectly, because I think George Blake was recruited in one of the camps. And uh, was he with you? Was he in the same camp as you? How many camps were there? And it's great to hear the kind of regimental spirit turn their efforts to turn you, met with derision, but were some tempted? Some people flirted with communism and, and thought this would be a well, good that idea. Well, was, that was the trouble. Quite shortly after we were captured and in the camps, I mean, nowadays they talk of radicalisation, so I suppose, in a way, they tried to radicalize us. They tried indoctrination. They took it upon themselves, the English-speaking commissars, to try and indoctrinate us and convince us that communism was the best thing since sliced bread, an old cliche, I know. But we could see through it. And we, we used to take the mickey out of them terribly, but they used to like it because if you argued with them, they assumed you were interested. So we used to tone it down a bit. But anyway, we used to, I mean, Anthony Farrah Hawkley, the adjutant, he was a past master 
and he used to get on their nerves terribly. He tried to escape five times. Each time he was brought back. And what the Chinese used to do, and in fact they were quite within their right to shoot you if you escaped. So you were always conscious when you escaped of getting a bullet in the back, which is what happened to me. I didn't get a bullet in the back, obviously, I'm still here. But I was always conscious of it happening. And what happened to me is I was recaptured. I tried to escape with a man called Dave Green, who was in the Gloucesters. I forget which company, Brian may know. Oh, I can't remember. No, I can't. I, I think it was B Company. I'm not sure. Anyway, we were recaptured, and I'm afraid if you did something wrong, you were put on the naughty step the Chinese had. I think they invented it way back. And um, I'm afraid we were punished because we were charged strangely enough, with abusing Chinese hospitality. Brian will tell you, you had to make a confession. And we used to take the mickey out of them terribly. And if you did it quick enough, even the good English-speaking commissard couldn't understand you. But occasionally, they got the gist. We would sing songs like Mao Zedong, Mao Zedong, who flung dong at Mao Zedong. And of course, the Chinese picked it up, occasionally. And of course, the consequence was pretty dire. And we had one man in the camp called Derek Kinney. And again, Brian will tell you, he was a real headache to the Chinese. And in fact, he was there to avenge his brother, who was in the Middlesex Regiment and had been killed when the war started, back in 1950. So he joined the Royal Northumberland Fusiliers to avenge his brother. Anyway, he was captured, and he ended up being awarded the George Cross for his bravery whilst a prisoner. But of course, he used to stir them up. And when he stirred them up, they stayed stirred up for days, you know, and we bore the consequences. But anyway... Were you physically beaten? Yes, yes, we were physically beaten because if you escaped and you were recaptured, which was the case, nobody escaped, only one man who didn't come back because what the Chinese used to do if they got an escapee and they shot him, they would bring his body back to the camp and say to you, they'd line us up and say, look, this is what happens if you try to escape. You get shot. So not many people did try it, but Fal Hockley tried five times. And if any man could succeed, he could. But he didn't. And you were punished very much. Let's get another couple of questions in. Gentleman there. Hi, thank you very much. Um, you mentioned previously that the Koreans treated you differently as prisoners, noticeably worse. 
because they were trained by the Japanese, did they fight differently as well? Could you tell when you were facing maybe a Chinese battalion which just sort of runs screaming at you against a Korean battalion? Did they fight differently? Did they use different weapons, different tactics? Did, did you face the North Koreans in battle? No. Or was it always Chinese? Chinese. Chinese, always, always Chinese. Chinese. There were a few North Koreans, but very few. At that stage, in 51, the North Koreans had been defeated and were no longer relevant. The Chinese controlled North Korea completely. Brilliant. Right, next one. Here we go. Yep, gentlemen, further up there. Here we go. Um, I was just wondering about the circumstances of your release uh, from captivity. <laughs> Whether you, how far you knew in advance it might be happening, or what were the circumstances, or how you felt at the time of your release. It was a prisoner exchange. We used to go, we all assembled um, eventually nearer the border where the demarcation line is now. Then we'd wait for us to be named and then we would go, what we call Freedom Bridge, we'd pass each other and um, they'd be thrown off their stuff the Americans would give them. <laughs> and Brian, did you know that you were about, I mean, the war obviously petered out, didn't it? Did well, you, did what it was, yeah. Dan... Immediately after we were taken prisoner, shortly afterwards, in June, July, peace talks started. So we thought, great, we'll be home by Christmas. No chance. Well, a bit like John Lewis, you know, never opened before Christmas. And <laughs> eventually, in 53, we started to realize we were being better treated. The first year was the worst. Hardly any good treatment at all. The second year was bad enough. The third year, we started to be treated better. We got, Brian will tell you, a small goodie bag from the Red Cross. Toothbrushes, soap, things we take for granted, we got after three years in prison. And then, one morning in August, I think it was, no, June, July, we were assembled on what we called a square. It was the mud patch. The Chinese surrounded us with guards, with fixed bayonets. And we thought, oh God, we're for the chop. Anyway, um, the commandant came along, spoke Chinese for half an hour, and my mate said to me, he knew a bit of Chinese, he said, he keeps talking about the peace talks. Now, whether the peace talks had broken down or whether they were coming to an end, we didn't know. But anyway, the interpreter got up and said those magic words we'd heard many times on the films in World War II. For you, the war is over. And we just stood still, not uttering a sound. We didn't murmur, we didn't utter a word. The Chinese were baffled and afterwards they said, why didn't you rejoice? Because all of a sudden the Americans got the word and we heard big cheers coming from the American compound. And we said, because to be honest, we didn't believe you. You've told us that many lies when you tried to indoctrinate us, we thought you were having us on. And Strangely enough, because of indoctrination, 
the peace talks had decided that whoever wanted to could stay either in Korea or go to China and live a normal life. About 12 Brits agreed to this. About 150 Americans agreed to this. But gradually, the Brits changed their minds. Only one went. And only one man, a Marine mm. called Condren, decided he wanted to go to China. And indeed, he did. And we believe, we're not certain, but we believe he married a Japanese girl in China and raised a family. And apparently, he sneaked back into England years later and got out again quickly because obviously they were liable for prosecution, for treason or whatever. But Brian will tell you there were probably about 12 who sided with the Chinese. Anyway, that's enough. That's a wonderful place to finish, but I've got one last question. You both volunteered for this. Do you regret it? Brian? Well, it's been a wonderful experience, I can always um, hmm. No, not tonight. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> I already meant tonight. <laughs> you both volunteered to go to that war. Oh, yeah, yeah. Do you regret it? Well, initially I did, but when I went back, I said I would never go back. Well, I went back, I think it was in 86, I think it was, and I couldn't believe what they'd done, the Koreans, in that space of time. You know, I, I, I went up to the office and I had an, an iPad then, I put it on the table and I thought, I'll try emailing home, like, you know. I was straight in, like, you know, and I couldn't believe it, like, you know. I think, we still got to get Wi-Fi home, like, you know. Well, that's Gloucestershire for you. So, okay, so seeing it today, how developed it is, that made it worth it. What about you? Do you regret it? Absolutely not. No, no. no. We, now, go, we go over there, they just like gods, they do. Well, I did for many years regret it for the sake of relatives, next of kin, loved ones, you name it, who had lost people in the war. The worst thing we saw, really, was the fate of refugees in Korea. Yeah, that was the... That Terrible, when, especially yeah, when, during when, the winter. Uh, when Afghan came flooding back again, when the yeah. Afghans were trying to get out of Afghan, like, you know, and it just come back because we were dug in beside the railway and they were just flooding through. I was hanging on to the train, the train, one train line there, and, and they were all hanging on to the sides on the roof, everything, just to escape. But, so, but, but now you don't regret Well, it's, it's the same in most wars, as you know. Civilians suffer the worst, and they did suffer really badly because the Koreans had come down, gone back, North Koreans, the Chinese had come down and gone back. I mean, Seoul itself changed hands about four times. But just quickly, if you know now what you know and what you went through, you go back and talk to that 19-year-old, would you tell him to go or stay in the UK, looking well, back? Well, looking back, yes, because it was the start of my army career. I'm glad it happened then, because it geared me up, really. Um, I mean, when we came back, I'll be quite honest. I should, no, do you know what? We should stop, because these people have all got talks to go to. I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's my fault. It's my fault. 
Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. What a... <laughs> Thanks, Dan. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished. Thanks, folks. You've reached the end of another episode. Hope you're still awake. Appreciate your loyalty. Sticking through to the end. If you fancied doing us a favour here at History Hit, I would be incredibly grateful if you would go and wherever you get these pods, give it a little rating, five stars or its equivalent. A review would be great. Please head over there and do that. It really does make a huge difference. It's one of the funny things the algorithm loves to take into account. So please head over there and do that. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.